Files. I'm Ed Hendrickson. Morocco has long served as a liminal space between worlds. It is most often categorized as a peripheral space in the larger Islamic world. And in universities, it's most often located in Middle Eastern studies. This understanding of Morocco as an Orientalist hangover, first imagined by colonial Europe and naturalized by the contingencies of post-colonial nation building. But this isn't the only approach. It's worth remembering that Morocco sits at the northwesternmost corner of the African continent and has always been deeply embedded in worlds to the south, politically, economically, and culturally. Today, Morocco is a choke point along migrant trails connecting Africa to Europe. According to the Migration Policy Institute, some 700,000 sub-Saharan migrants currently reside in Morocco, stalled on their journey into the EU. What is life like for these migrants? And what histories inform Morocco's migration policies? On this week's episode of Afrofiles, I sit down with Dr. Leslie Grosswurtson, a postdoctoral associate with the Council for African Studies and a faculty fellow in the Center for Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. She has published numerous articles on borders, race, and migration in the Euro-African borderlands, and is currently working on her first book project entitled Bordering Blackness, the production of race in the Morocco-EU immigration regime. Join us on this episode of Afrofiles. So my work looks at two things, I think. It looks at how money and other forms of capital drove Europe to enlist its neighbors in this process of keeping people out, um, but also how racism and specifically anti-Blackness drove this process. So Europe, um, early on when they were articulating this externalized border idea, this idea of getting other countries to help them keep migrants out, drew a map. And on that map, they identified Black Africa as a place where they wanted no migrants to come from. So for me, this, this idea that at its core, the border is a racial um, institution led me to examine its mechanisms and how it impacted migrants and their daily lives and their ability to move and their ability to survive in Morocco and also how it impacts Moroccan society as a result. So that really is part of what drove this research. It's really a fascinating subject to study and, and your work really thoroughly unpacks sort of all of the nuances and layers uh, connecting race, immigration, and the border policies in Morocco and North Africa. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this concept of the EU's externalized border. What what is the EU's role in determining border policy and developing border infrastructure in Morocco? Sure, that's a good question. So the European Union and states like individual states like Spain or France um, have been enlisting this cooperation from its neighbors in North Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean, like Turkey, in keeping migrants out of Europe. And basically the idea here is that you bring the border to migrants rather than allowing migrants to reach your border. So they're investing money in Morocco and other North African countries and now it, all the way into West Africa and Central Africa. And there's also um, a lot of investment happening on the eastern coast of Africa as well. Um, they're training local law enforcement there to keep an eye out for people who look like they might migrate or people who are moving 
on migratory routes. They're providing technology, drones, radar, sometimes weapons, trucks, things like that um, to keep people out. And so the idea is that they, they're trying to prevent people from slipping across the border into Europe, where then you have the Schengen zone. You can move freely from country to country once you're in the European Union. They're trying to prevent that from ever ever happening. And they're also trying to prevent the amassing of refugees and migrants along their border. So instead of having refugee camps and migrant encampments all along the border of Europe, they're pushing those back into places like Turkey, Lebanon, Tunisia, um, Kenya, so that it's a little bit more out of sight. And also, you know, just to create a buffer or to create distance between people who would want to enter Europe. And it started in the late 1990s as, you know, a project of the European Union with a few hundred thousand euros. And now it's a multi-billion dollar uh, endeavor and it supports defense agencies, uh, nonprofits, researchers like me. <laughs> um, it also, you know, the hardening of the border and the expansion of this border enforcement across all of this space has resulted in a really robust smuggling industry, a multi-billion dollar smuggling industry as well. So, you know, it's it's this really significant um Part of not just European foreign policy, but it's it's become really important to these neighboring countries, uh, domestic policy, their international relations with Europe. They get trade uh, special trade incentives based on their cooperation. They get special visas for their own residents based on their cooperation. Things like that. So it sounds like Morocco and many of these sort of peripheral countries are getting a lot out of this exchange, that there's a whole complex of humanitarian immigration, um, you know, criminal elements that are working to, in some way, produce the enterprise of immigration, that there's a, a commercial aspect to it. Am I hearing that correctly? Absolutely. And there's an anthropologist named Ruben Anderson who wrote a wonderful book called Illegality, Inc., in 2014 that maps out some of that. And his point is that we have to think of this in, of the border less in political terms and more in economic terms, that the border is, is uh, and border enforcement is a way of generating profits. And so he puts, along with some other anthropologists and geographers and sociologists, he puts defense agencies in the same category as smugglers, because all of them are capitalizing on illegal mobility. And it's, it's enabling, um, it's enabling the existence of smugglers, of defense agencies, of NGOs, of human rights organizations at all levels, at the local really small level of these tiny little NGOs that get, you know, a few thousand euro grant for educating uh, migrants in Ghana not to travel, not to not to migrate to, you know, to these vast uh, research institutes that get, you know, hundreds of millions of euros to research the problems of migration or how to prevent migration. Unos 150 migrantes intentaron este lunes entrar de manera irregular en la ciudad española de Melilla, en el norte de África, saltando la valla fronteriza con Marruecos. J'avais un peu d'argent, je l'ai, je l'ai caché, j'avais mon téléphone, je l'ai mis dans, dans mon caleçon. Comme dans d'autres villes marocaines, les migrants venus d'Afrique noire sont victimes de violences quotidiennes. 
Mais Griff, arrivé maintenant, ils ont dit Yalla, Yalla, ça veut dire allons. Je suis déjà saltando la vache hace un an et trois meses. Esa noche saltamos este de un muro y nos cogimos la policía y nos pegaron y nos mandaron por fuera. For you to travel through the desert, it's not an easy journey. You pass through a lot, you know. In the process, you'll be harassed by different kind of people. At times, you have your life in a very risky condition. But I was thinking that if I get to Morocco, that yes, at least part of my problem I've solved. But I discovered I got to Morocco, Morocco was like hell, because the government could not let us be. So the Moroccan context is really interesting because in Morocco itself, you have two Spanish cities, Melilla and Ceuta, that are leftovers from the colonial period. They're, they're on the northern Mediterranean coast of Morocco. So when Moroccan or other African migrants want to get to Europe, they don't have to get in a boat and go across the Mediterranean Sea. They can try to get into Melilla or Ceuta without, you know, once they're there, they're in Europe. So as a result, these cities have become heavily fortified. They have six meter, three six meter high fences, barbed wire, drones, dogs, guards, moats, etc. And when migrants try to get across this border, you know, they're beaten, they're knocked off these fences and, you know, will fall six meters. Um, sometimes they have been shot at. And ultimately, they're rounded up and often put on buses and bused to the border with Algeria, which is a desert border. And migrants will tell stories of border guards letting them off the bus in the middle of the desert and pointing south and saying, walk home. Um, so, you know, obviously, this pract these practices are extremely violent. They've been well publicized. The media has really covered them and have resulted in a lot of outcry, particularly from Moroccan and migrant activists who have become more and more organized over the years in protesting these human rights violations. So um, after a few really damning reports came out in 2013, King Mohammed VI announced that Morocco would pivot and have an, a more humane migration policy that would become a leader in the region. Um, and, and, and in some ways, I mean, I think that they really need credit for that because this policy granted residency permits to many, many undocumented people in the country. Um, it extended social services to any person in the country, regardless of their legal status. So health, free health service, free education for children, et cetera. And, you know, if we compare it to the way the United States is operating now with wholesale and long-term immigration detention, I don't want to, in criticizing it, diminish how significant this, this shift to a more humane policy was. But, you know, at the same time, based on my research, what I found is that giving residency to migrants and tolerating their presence in, Moroc in Moroccan territory pretty much just meant that you had a lot of unemployed people living in really desperate situations all across the country. And in fact, because so many migrants um, are visible now living in cities across the country, and this has to do with some of the particular practices that resulted after this, you have a new visibility um, across Moroccan society about migration, and it's a really racialized visibility. So you see black, really poor people sleeping on the streets, 
begging for money and things like that. And so I think in some ways it is heightened or exacerbated um, the racial nature of illegal immigration within the country and people's understanding of it. Police still frequently round up anyone who is phenotypically black. And it doesn't matter really. Sometimes people who have legal residency and have papers on them are still rounded up. And they're put on buses and dumped in cities further away from the border, so further south into the Moroccan you know, countryside. And suddenly in the center of the country, in cities like Fez and Meknes, you would see black people begging on the street or sleeping on the street all over. And it felt as though the number of migrants was rapidly increasing when instead they were just being relocated into the heart of these interior cities. So I think that that migration has really come to be associated with blackness in Morocco. So that's kind of the local the local context, but there's also a bigger context here in terms of who is or isn't an African migrant. Um, so in Morocco, I think when you talk about Africans or African migrants, everybody understands that you're talking about people from sub-Saharan Africa. And this was really fascinating to me because Morocco had just recently rejoined the African Union and the king has made a really big pivot toward reclaiming Morocco's African identity to the extent that he used to wear really snappy European suits, really nicely tailored suits. And now he dresses in more traditional garb and sometimes sometimes West African garb as well. Um, So... So even though he's made this pivot in everyday conversation, even he has said this in interviews before, um, people refer to migrants as Africans. And I thought that was really interesting, partly because a lot of people who are migrating to Europe are actually Moroccans. And also because Moroccans themselves are Africans. So this, this identity was really interesting. And I've started to trace it back to the colonial period where the French made a big distinction between what they called white Africa, which was North Africa, and black Africa, which is sub-Saharan Africa, and and began to assert the true Africa was sub-Saharan, right? And, and North Africa was more oriented to the Middle East. And we see that replicated today. I think it would be really shocking for many American listeners to realize that there are these Spanish enclaves built into Morocco or or that there's this long colonial legacy of this division and, and the spatialization of race in North Africa. I wonder if you think that contemporary border regimes are reproducing the same kind of color bar that the colonial era did, that this is really more of a continuity than a rupture. It's a yes and a no, right? So I absolutely think that border enforcement in this area is because it's so clearly racialized, because it targets blackness and is adding these new layers or imbuing this new significance of blackness and Africanness with illegality or with out-of-placeness. I think we have to understand that it is reproducing racial geographies of belonging and exclusion, right? Um, But at the same time, 
something that I think has always happened is happening again. And that is that other sorts of spaces are being created as well. And these are spaces of transnational black diasporas. So you have, for example, in Italy, you have black Italians that have, you know, whose families have been in Italy for generations who are expressing solidarity with new immigrants from Africa and, you know, agitating on their behalf for better treatment. You have in Morocco, um, one of one of the most famous activists in Morocco on behalf of migrants is Dries Gazemi, who was himself in France as an undocumented person. And his experience of being an undocumented Maghrebi person in France led him when he returned back to Morocco to look around and start to agitate on behalf of sub-Saharan Africans. So you have all of these sorts of solidarities. You also have, you know, in my research, um, though many West and Central Africans organize themselves or live with their fellow countrymen or people that speak their same language or from or are from their same ethno-linguistic group, you also have a lot more mixing. And a lot of people told me, you know, we're black. Everyone, all of us migrants here, we're just black and we need each other to survive. And so you have this black diaspora in the making in Morocco that transcends these differences. Um, an example of that that I I saw in field work was among Cameroonians, actually, because, you know, right now Cameroon is basically in a civil war between its Anglophone side and its Francophone side. The country is divided. Things have been getting really bad. And quite a few of the Cameroonian migrants that I knew in Morocco had family who had you know, been, uh, their homes had been burned. They'd lost their property. They were hiding in the bush. Some people had died. It was really intense. But what I saw actively frequently in Morocco is Cameroonians saying, we are not going to replicate that here. We're all black. We're all Cameroonian. We need each other and we're going to show a different way. And, you know, I saw that across, not just, not just within a particular conflict in a country, but across national divides, Malians, and Ghanaians or African Christians and African Muslims coming together. And I think that was really exciting to me to think about the ways in which mobility is is a process of connection um, as much as it might be a process of separation. And I don't think that the border has been, su- been successful in preventing that. And I don't, and, and in fact has facilitated that. That's really lovely. I, I love hearing about, um, the new kinds of identities and the new kinds of solidarities that are produced um, uh, along these migration routes. Absolutely. And I mean, what I would say, something that's been really exciting in the last year or in the last, you know, eight months or so has been the way that Black Lives Matter has been taken up in this context. You know, so the killing of George Floyd in the United States really um, catalyzed discussions about race in North Africa and among North African diasporas. And there have been a lot of particularly young people posting on social media who are claiming an, what they're calling an Afro-Arab identity and reclaiming sort of this their Arab identity, but also their, you know, identity that comes from descendants of slaves that were 
um, brought to North Africa in the trans-Saharan slave trade and celebrating both aspects of that identity and also pushing against anti-Blackness within their own countries. And so that's been really exciting, I think, to see too. I think, and there's been a lot of silence on the subject of race in North Africa as a colonial construct, you know, or as something divisive that doesn't serve the project of nation building in the post-colonial context. But these young people are really pushing for more direct engagement with their own history, right? I wonder if you could speak about the politics of protests and migrant activism in Morocco, given my understanding is that it's somewhat tightly controlled. Um, is, Is that an accurate understanding? Morocco definitely is is authoritarian uh, in many ways, but it's interesting that the field of migration has been and there's been a lot of freedom in that field, and that that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not going to say that's entirely true. But for example, a lot has been studied on migration in Morocco in part because. Morocco gives researchers permits to come and do research. And Tunisia doesn't do that, for example, or Algeria um, to the same degree. And they're a lot more tightly controlled. So so there's been a lot more freedom. And there are hundreds of migrant-led, very small NGOs and human rights organizations that operate both formally and informally in Morocco. And the Moroccan state has been known to partner with them, to listen to them, etc. I think if I were going to say like small p politics, what's going on there, migrants experience their knowledge, their local activism in the service of their communities often gets appropriated by foreign research institutes and NGOs. So, you know, the frontline workers of human rights and migrant activism are migrants themselves and, and, and some local Moroccans. But the funding flows to these larger and often foreign organizations who then, you know, will pay a very, very small amount of money in compensation um, to these people who are doing a lot of the work. So that's one of the ways I think that isn't necessarily related directly to the state, but gives you a better sense of sort of the international context and the industry part of, you know, part of the border. Um, and that's really unfortunate, I think. And so migrants are, are, are frequently, and migrant activists are frequently vying for, you know, small amounts of either money or other kinds of cultural capital for really a tremendous amount of work that they do. The folks that I was doing research among, some of the migrant leaders really were working 80, 90 hours a week serving their community. Their phones were never turned off. I would get phone calls at two in the morning and they were still helping someone solve a problem or going to, you know, arrange transportation for someone else. And a lot of them did it really understanding that they would never be fully compensated and that it wouldn't translate to some opportunity in Europe or some, you know, better life position, but because they really cared about their communities. I then asked Dr. Grosswurtzen to share some stories from her fieldwork in Morocco and lessons she learned. You know, what really was important or what I, I came to appreciate is how these communities 
formed to survive and to support each other and how they were able to exercise a lot of creativity in doing that. And I also learned that the binaries that are really common in discussions about migration, for example, trafficker and victim, are just too simplistic. So an example of this is that, you know, I knew a woman who could easily be considered a human trafficker. She lent, basically what she did is she would buy the debt from other women who had had gone into debt in order to pay a smuggler. She would buy that debt and then they would have to practice sex work to pay off her debt. And if they wanted to continue on to Europe, she would front them that money as well to pay a smuggler for the next phase, but they would have to stay longer and work off that debt with significant interest, mostly through sex work, sometimes through begging or hair braiding or some other things like that. Um, But, you know, she herself was a migrant and she had actually a few years previous tried to cross the Mediterranean in an inflatable boat, which was shot at by the Moroccan Navy and had capsized. And they spent 18 hours in the water in December before they were finally rescued. And a lot of people drowned. Um, She also had a son who at the time of my work was about two years old, who was probably born as a result of sex work herself or as um, as a result of rape that she experienced while she was traveling. So, you know, so, I mean, that complicates the idea. And this woman also, you know, I remember going to a birthday party that she threw for one of her girls and she had baked this big, beautiful cake for one of the girls um, that she was the madam of basically and had decorated the house and bought her new clothes and was just really loving um, and tender to her. So, you know, how do we characterize this woman? Like, is she a trafficker? Is she a migrant? You know, how do we talk about that? And so I think that was what my field work was really able to get at is a lot of these categories are really unstable and and do a particular political work in and of themselves, right? Having a category of a human trafficker and accusing a woman like that of being a human trafficker is putting an awful lot of responsibility um, for the violence of the border on her shoulders and not on all of the other actors implicated in making all of these women really vulnerable. You paint a a really complex human portrait of migrants and it i think it's important to to really underscore exactly the pressures that the border regime has placed on migrants um so thank you for that that's a really insightful um really insightful story in what ways is morocco typical of global trends in migration immigration policy and in what ways is it maybe unique You know, some will say you just can't generalize, right? Each context has its specific history, its particular dynamics, its particular domestic or internal politics. And, you know, to to talk about generalities is just too much of a simplification. But, you know, others, especially folks... Um, who are writing about race in post-colonial contexts will be too quick to take categories that are formed in other places like the United States or Europe and just slap them onto another context kind of unquestioningly. So I'm really sensitive to both of those 
you know, both of those critiques in, in answering your question. Um, but I think, you know, one way I can, I can think about that is that when I share my work and have conversations with border scholars who are working in other places, um, especially in transnational or externalized border contexts, like those between Europe and Africa or Europe and the Middle East or between the U.S. and Mexico and Central America, for example, is that in many of these contexts, this, this border, this transnational border project is producing categories of otherness and giving them new salience in these neighboring countries, in these partner countries. So, for example, in Mexico, you know, I'm hearing from people from both from researchers in Mexico and researchers that look at this situation more broadly, that anti-Indigenous and anti-Central American sentiment is on the rise and is becoming more and more mainstream across Mexico. And, you know, that isn't to say that there isn't a long history in Mexico of anti-Indigenous racism or ideology, but now, again, this notion of indigeneity and Central Americanness is also laden with these ideas of illegality, of poverty, of human trafficking, sex work, drug mules, you know, things like that. Um, in Mauritania, that's another example. It's a very complex context. It has a very complex racial history in which you have indigenous Black and indigenous so-called white people in Mauritania, um, the history of colonialism there really created binaries of black and white in that area. But now you have the European externalized border operating there as well so that blackness again is connected to illegality, um, connected to outsiderness. So in ways that black Mauritanians were considered other within their own country, now their presence within that country is questioned at all, if that makes sense. You know, I think that the racial border, and I really do think that, that border enforcement is always othering, it's always racializing, right? So I think that the racial border is animating already existing categories of otherness and adding new meaning to them and new layers across many different contexts. And that is something I feel pretty comfortable generalizing about. And then the other thing is, you know, that it's about money too. <laughs> there's a lot of money that's driving these impulses. Right. I would imagine that there's a whole network of professionals who are working in sort of immigration control and policy who who are communicating with one another about effective strategies because there is a at least when we were when I pitched this episode to the team they mentioned that yeah the US actually has a pretty similar externalized border yeah which they've actually learned from Europe and you know from the Euro and because Morocco is such an early partner in this program you know Morocco itself has been a real test case for that and Turkey um Turkey's role in containing Syrian refugees in the last few years has been modeled in large part on some of the things that Morocco has done as well. So absolutely, there's a lot of that information sharing. And then, of course, you know, contracts for the actual tech that's being sold to build border walls and things like that. Um, you know, that's a, those are transnational or multinational companies. And so those things 
you know, so these companies are saying, hey, it worked in the Moroccan context, you should try it in your context, etc. And I think it's true that, you know, while, for example, the US has to use US-based contractors, I think, for the building of some of its walls. I know that some of the tech has also come from, for example, the Israel-Palestine border and from the companies that design that technology. And so there's a lot of information sharing and a lot of circulation of, you know, knowledge and goods and things like that, you know, everywhere. I want to thank you so much for participating in this interview. It's been really fascinating, really fantastic. Um, I I appreciate your time and and then giving us your, lending us your brain for an hour. Well, it was very much my pleasure. And I'm sure you know this, but, you know, we don't, we academics don't always get to talk about our research. So it's fun to have have a blessing to do so. So thank you again. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced and edited by me, Ed Hendrickson. Our theme is from Risen. Music from Jose Barrios and Andres Cantu. And thanks again to Dr. Leslie Grosswordson for her insights. 